Hey everybody, welcome to episode 7 of Literary Disco, a separate piece. Today we will do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelf to discuss, and then we will talk about John Knowles' classic high school novel, A Separate Piece. And finally, we'll do another Classics Quarter with 2Ks segment, wherein one of us fakes a passage from a classic book and tries to fool the other two. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, joining me as essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hello there. So, uh, who wants to go first on the old bookshelf revisiting? I think, I'll go first. Oh, I was going to oh. say Ryder should go first. Ryder never goes first. Why do you always have I to have go gone first, first, Julia? He went first last time. Oh. Yeah, but it's okay. I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm happy well, to Julia do it. Well, Julia wants to go. I don't want to be a shit heap and not no, letting her go. No, go ahead, Ryder. Ryder, go. Let's keep playing this game, though. I think this is incredibly <laughs> interesting. No, no, you go. Make no, no, sure you this go. all stays in. Yes. You go, Ryder. All right, so I, uh, I uh, just uh, the other day, um, I was getting requests for a good book to read, as you often do when you are known as a reader. And um, it was a, a woman who, a friend who is a big, powerful executive at a network, a Ooh. television network. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, you want to, you know, nonfiction or a poetry recommendation or, you know, and then I was like, oh, if she hasn't read any David Foster Wallace, she has to read David Foster Wallace. And, uh, which made me think I want to recommend that she read E Unibus Plurum, which is David Foster Wallace's amazing essay on television. And once I had recommended it to her, which I sort of felt like it was because it's a very critical essay about television. And it was just an interesting moment to be like passing along this book that I'm sure, you know, when you when I first read it, what, 10, 15 years ago, I remember thinking something like, God, I wish more people that worked in television read this kind of book. And like, here I am handing it to somebody who could actually change the culture of television, hopefully for the better. But anyway, I it made me want to reread the, the essay, and it's really long. It's in his collection, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. Best and book. I love that book. That's a great it's book. the best book ever, and this essay is so unbelievable, and I just couldn't believe that I sat down to sort of just skim through it, and I was completely enthralled. It's like 80 pages long. He, he's so clear and forthright about, like, I mean, he's, he's one of these essayists who will be like, here's what I'm trying to get at in my essay. But then what he's getting at is always so nuanced and so com- complex that it takes that long to get his point across because it's so nuanced. Right. What's crazy is that it's incredibly dated. It's written in 1990, and he's talking mostly about commercials from the mid-'80s and how television was changing and how we watch TV, and um, he's relating it to fiction. But um, actually... Everything still applies, and and then he even he even quotes somebody else um, who was sort of being more positive than he is in this essay, talking about the future of television. And this other person talks about, well, someday we'll have uh, a terminal computer that we will have connected to everybody else's, where people will be able to cut and paste their own content and share it with each other. And you won't pick a channel to watch; you'll pick a person. He describes Facebook; oh, wow. it's like crazy. And like how we sort of can create our own content and share content with each other and use each other's recommendations to find shows. And and this person was way more positive about saying, saying like that will liberate television from the sort of problems of the passive problems of television. And David Foster Wallace is like, I don't think that would do it. I think that just becomes more time to waste. <laughs> uh, and I think David Foster well, Wallace right. is more accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's just an amazing essay um, because it sort of starts from the premise of I'm going to write an essay that's critical of television, but I know you're so sick of reading essays about being critical of television. 
and he's more interested in why is it that everybody's against television? Like, why is it that we all enjoy it? And then he sort of describes how encoded within television is usually the fact that we hate watching television, which is a really weird point, but it makes sense when you read it. Like, he just talks about how commercials are usually jokes on themselves that their their use of irony within the presentation of a commercial mm. itself is part of the tactic by which television keeps us addicted to it and it's just a great it's a great essay but if in in general it's an amazing book and if you haven't read any David Foster Wallace you have to um I'm not a huge fan of his fiction I cannot read Infinite Jest I to say I've tried four times it's a huge book and I've never been able to get through it but his short stories are great, and his essays are on a whole other level. Amazing. And I'm a big fan of uh, Consider the Lobster, which was his uh, second book of mm-hmm. essays, which I was absolutely amazing and has a great essay on, um, on riding on the bus with John McCain. Speaking of amazing essayists, Julia Pistel, what are you taking off yes. of your bookshelf? Well, actually, I was thinking of interjecting earlier, too, because I also have a super famous essayist this week. This is not actually that exciting. In terms of, like, everyone has heard of this. But I'm rereading Joan Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Love that book. This oh, book. Great book. I've never read it. Oh, oh my God. God. Writer. Okay. You're off the show. <laughs> That's it. That's huh? it. <laughs> I've read this book maybe four or five times. And wow. every time, it's like I've never read it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd, have you right. reread it? Yeah, I've read it a bunch of times. And I, and I teach from it all the time, too. So I end up reading... Um, uh, what's it called? The one about the the murder in um, in San Bernardino, Golden Slumbers, whatever it's called. Yeah, some dreamers of the golden dream. Yeah, some dreamers of the golden slumbers. It's also a Beatles song. Yeah, some dreamers of the golden dream. Yeah, this book is so she is so amazing. And can I just say that the reason that I'm rereading it is that I'm interviewing her live on stage in front of 500 people. Oh my god! No way! That's great. When are you doing that? In two weeks. Oh God! <sighs> Why aren't you in bed? <laughs> Guys, I have a lot to do between now and then. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, it's funny. I, I told you guys I'm interviewing Judy Bloom on June 21st, and then I'm interviewing Joan Didion on June 28th. So this whole wow. month is crazy. But anyway, slouching towards Bethlehem. These essays are extraordinary because she, unlike David Foster Wallace, very rarely, um, actually, I'm going to say never, says anything directly. All she does is arrange details to give you the sharpest picture of what she is trying to say. And it is so beautiful and it is so crafted that I can, I mean, I can barely describe it. It's just, she sinks you into this thing and they're personal while also not being personal. And I don't know, Todd, when you teach it, what do you teach about? Well, I teach about that very thing, which is that she's simple and direct. You know, and the the frightening aspect of that book also is that she was 27 when she wrote it, or something yeah. crazy like that. She was just a kid, relatively speaking. But I think you know she was also the harbinger of new journalism. Everything in that yes. book is what changed writing from that point forward, nonfiction writing specifically, that immersive journalism, um, the first person reporting, all of that came from Slouching Towards Bethlehem, and also the White Album, uh, her, her other book of essays from that from that period. Um, but the fascinating thing for me is that, you know, the, the clear um, influence of Truman Capote on her writing yes. in that book also yeah. is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, another one of my favorites. Yeah, it's so dark while being so Californian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you read The Year of Magical Thinking? Yes, I have. I've read that. And, um, yeah, I've read the, the White Album, this one, and The Year of Magical Thinking. And um, 
I haven't read any of her other stuff, but I'm trying to read most of it before I meet her. And the other thing is, um, oh, I listened to, this is like a mini endorsement within my endorsement. She did an interview with Terry Gross um, after the year of magical thinking. And I listened to it in the car, and it is just a sob fest because, I mean, at least I'm interviewing her about, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. She went on a book tour talking about the death of her husband and her daughter yeah. for a year. You know what I mean? And this NPR interview is just absolutely, I mean, Terry Gross at one point is like, so do you look forward to your own death or oh, are you dreading it in some way? Oh, and it's, I won't tell you, <laughs> I won't tell you. Actually, actually, let me do uh, Terry Gross asking that question. Yeah, Ryder does a fantastic Terry Gross imitation. So go ahead. So, you know, I was, well, the thing, the thing that I was thinking about when I was, when I was reading this book, which we, you, you wrote, and it's a book that, well, you know, I was sort of thinking, because death, death is a big, big part of the, I mean, death is, so, so I guess what I was, I was sort of, I was sort of thinking, maybe, what, do you think of your own death? (laughs) Thank you. Wow, that was incredible. But yeah, I won't tell you what her answer is, but it is just the most heartbreaking um, answer and so honest and so brutal. And I just admire her so much for her writing style and also her honesty. And I love her. Is there going to be uh, some sort of video recording or podcast of this put on by the Twain House? I am unsure at this moment. So I will let you guys know later. So if I can, can I send you all of my Joan Didion books to get signed? And I'm going to need them personalized, each and every one, to Todd. Okay. Best wishes, I'm gonna, love Joan. I'll say yes, but I'll make her put two Ds on all of oh. them. There was, uh, <laughs> there was one time, and I'll get to my bookshelf revisit after I tell this brief story. So I'm a big Elmore Leonard fan. And there was one time I was doing a book signing at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. And it was at this bookstore, the mystery bookstore. So they had, like, seven authors sitting in a row signing books. And it was Elmore Leonard, uh, some cat mystery lady, and then me, and then uh, my friend Victor Gishler. And so we're all in a row signing books. And I have, like, seven people. And the cat lady has, you know, 500. And uh, Victor Gishler also has seven. And Elmore Leonard has, like, you know, 5,000 people in line. So Victor and I have a lot of time in between uh, signing books to ruminate on our lives. And I've got a stack of Elmore Leonard books that I want to get signed. So I very casually say to the bookstore owner, hey, is it okay if I sneak into the front of the line here with the 15,000 people waiting to get their book signed to get my book signed so that I can go back and tend to my crowd of four people <laughs> waiting to get their book signed? And so the bookstore owner says, sure, 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 no, no problem. So they slide me in front, and I've got a stack of books. i got, like, eight first editions. And mind you, I'm wearing a name tag that has my name on it in big letters. It says Todd uh. on it. And so I start handing Elmer Leonard all my books, and I'm telling him, oh, God, I'm a huge fan. What a huge influence you've been. I'm just, I love you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he and I are having just a very nice conversation, and, you know, he's given me life advice, all of which I've forgotten. And it's just, I'm feeling like we're probably going to keep in touch afterwards. So... <laughs> After my 17-minute book signing experience with Elmer Leonard, I take all my books back past the cat lady, and I sit down, and I do the thing that I always wonder about when people get their books signed by me, which is that I immediately go to see what he's written, 
as if oh, yeah. as if he's like saying, "Hey, give me a call next time you're in Detroit." You know, here's my email, <laughs> email address. address. Here's a photo of me. Um, right. So <laughs> I open up the first book and it says, "Dear Tom, best wishes." <gasps> and I open up the next book and it says, "Dear Tom," and they all say, "Dear Tom" in them. All of these books of his. <laughs> I jump that it. makes them even better. Oh. Now they're like, they're so super upset. collector items now. Yeah, if your name's fucking Tom. Uh, no, but that, that you have such a great story around it. That's oh, awesome. It's very upsetting. All of which leads me to uh, my next uh, bookshelf revisit. And here's the weird thing about our bookshelf revisit is all three of us inexplicably have picked basically um, collections or anthologies. Um, Yay. I picked um, this book that's been on my mind a lot. It's the Scribner Anthology of Contemporary Short Fiction, 50 North American Short Stories Since 1970. The reason I'm thinking about this is that I use this book constantly to teach from because it has every single great short story ever in it. I'm going to just tell you some of the short stories that are in here, and you guys will be amazed and confused and saddened. Um, Sherman Alexi, This Is What It Means to Say Phoenix, Arizona. Um, John Barth Click. Donald Bartlemay, The School, uh, Kate Braverman, Tall Tales, The Mekong Delta, Raymond Carver, Aaron, Juno Diaz, Fiesta 1980, Tony Early, The Prophet from Jupiter, and I'm skipping a bunch, uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, Rock Springs by Richard Ford, Marie by Edward P. Jones, Dennis Johnson's Emergency, Amy Hempel's In the Cemetery Where wow. Al Jolson's Buried, and when it says the 50 best North American short stories since 1970, it actually is the 15 best short stories since 1970. And so... Whenever someone asks me, you know, for an example of, you know, say, and I, I've been thinking about because I've been teaching uh, this last week, um, you know, oh, can you show me an example of setting? Or can you show me an example of an unreliable narrator? Or can you talk to me about, you know, weird points of view? Instead of, you know, saying, well, read this book and this book and this book, I frequently just tell people, buy this old edition of the Scribner Anthology of Contemporary Short Fiction because it has all of your answers in one place. Um, but the, the one story that is in here that um, I never get tired of, well, I never get tired of, of all of them, really, but the one I was thinking about the most this week was the Sherman Alexi story, This Is What It Means to Say, Phoenix, Arizona. If you saw the, the movie Smoke Signals, it's basically th that short story is Smoke Signals, if you ever saw it. Um, but it's a very short, it's maybe 3,000 words, the entire story, but it... It follows a young man, Victor, um, from the reservation where he lives outside of Spokane to Phoenix, Arizona, to get his father's belongings from um, a uh, trailer that he died in. But there's this one part that I'm going to read to you very briefly, which is um, Victor, it's at the beginning of the story, Victor has gone to the tribal council to ask for money. And it's just this great, weird dialogue that I'm going to read very quickly. Listen, Victor said, my father just died. I need some money to get to Phoenix to make arrangements. Now, Victor, the council said, you know we're having a difficult time financially, but I thought the council had special funds set aside for stuff like this. Now, Victor, we do have some money available for the proper return of tribal members' bodies, but I don't think we have enough to bring your father all the way from Phoenix. Well, Victor said, it ain't going to cost all that much. He had to be cremated. Things are kind of ugly. He died of a heart attack in his trailer. Nobody found him for a week. It was really hot, too. You get the picture. Now, Victor... We're sorry for your loss and the circumstances, but we can really only afford to give you $100. That's not even enough for a plane ticket. Well, you might consider driving down to Phoenix. I don't have a car. Besides, I was going to drive my father's pickup back up here. Now, Victor, the council said, 
We're sure there's somebody who could drive you to Phoenix. Or could anybody lend you that the rest of the money? And so that it goes on a little bit further. But the really amazing thing is that whole now Victor part. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a, an entire council speaking to the character. And so you get this, just from the now Victor repeated over and over again, this right. idea of this you know, standing authority, which is just a great bit of subtextual writing yeah. on Sherman Alexie's part. Great. I just love that stuff. So if you're interested in um, a good anthology of contemporary short fiction, the Scribner Anthology of Contemporary Short Fiction, it's edited by um, Lex Williford and Michael Martone, who are both actually quite good writers as well. Great. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it is. Damn. Yeah, I'm surprised I, I didn't. I should have just bought that book instead of buying everybody's individual collection <laughs> on that list. We're going to graduate school, <laughs> right? But... I still remember so distinctly the texts in seventh and eighth grade of short stories and learning all the parts of the story and what stories they were. Ray Bradbury stories, and uh, and can I tell you how bummed I am about Ray Bradbury dying? Yeah. No, are you bummed? I'm very bummed. It's been a bad like couple months for legends dying. I kind of feel like that just keeps happening as we get older, man. I know. <laughs> yeah, but, well, and Ray Bradbury's okay. I mean, he was in his 90s. But, like, someone like Adam Yauch from the Beastie Boys, I, that had a profoundly upsetting effect on me. I was depressed. I'm still depressed about it. I was depressed for, like, two weeks, though. Just, like, I cried when I found out that Adam Yauch had died. Aww. And I think, you know, here's a guy whose lyrics didn't exactly, you know, change the world, you know, in a metaphysical way. But, man, when he died, I sat at home... And listen to the Beastie Boys just constantly for days on end. And it's hard not to feel happy listening to the Beastie Boys. But man, was I bummed out. Did you see that? 47 years old. Did you see upsetting. the Coldplay? Yeah, I did. Was, I did. That was pretty awesome. I'm not, that was. I'm not like a big fan of, of, of either Beastie Boys or Coldplay. But like, that was pretty emotional. Mm-hmm. It was pretty great. Yeah. It's hard to cry during Fight for Your Right. Yeah. I was pretty sad about Maurice Sendak. That was pretty sad. Oh, man. Like, his views on what children can handle and what children are capable of understanding are really good. Yeah. <laughs> are really good. <laughs> All right, stick around as we delve into a separate piece. Welcome back to Literary Disco. This is Ryder Strong, and I'm joined by Julia Pistel and Todd Goldberg. Hello, guys. Hello Hello there. And uh, right now, we're going to talk about a separate piece, uh, which is a pretty classic, famous novel by John Knowles. It was first published in 1959, and it's uh, the the story of a character named Gene Forrester. It begins with him going back to his high school and uh, visiting after, I think, a, about 14 or 15 years after he graduated from high school. And then it uh, proceeds to go into a flashback to when he was in a summer session at this all-boys academy named Devon. Uh, it's on the East Coast. I'm not sure which state right off the top of my head, but definitely an East Coast all-boys academy in the summer of 1942 where he and his best friend, Finney, Phineas, are... Uh, spending the summer together and they're they're very different guys finney is outgoing charming super athletic and gene is an introverted academic and uh but they become best friends and then they begin what they call a suicide society 
which they jump out of a tree that hangs over a lake near the school. Over the course of the summer, Gene starts to believe that he and Finney are in this fierce competition with, with one another. And in this odd sort of impulsive moment, Gene bounces the tree branch that he and Finney are standing on. Um, and Finney falls and breaks his leg and, and sort of ruins any future in sports. Um, and then the rest of the novel follows Gene as he kind of lives with the guilt uh, and that goes into the fall school year. And uh, Finney ends up coming back. And Gene's constantly wondering why he shook the branch and how to deal with what he did. Uh, he tries admitting to Finney, and Finney doesn't really accept it. And World War II is sort of looming over their future, and eventually Gene starts getting pressure from the, his fellow classmates to sort of admit that he had intentionally um, knocked his friend from the tree. And that's the basic gist of at least the first half of the book. And the reason we chose it was... Because it's one of these school standards, high school or junior high standards that I, I sort of put in the same category as Grapes of Wrath or Catcher in the Rye. You know, a lot of those books that English teachers love to assign to their students. Um, and I know, Julia, you and Todd had both read it, mm -hmm. um, yeah. as probably have a lot of our listeners. But I never read it. So we thought that this would be a good uh, collision of a revisiting on one hand and a discovery on the other. And actually, you know, as opposed to like Animal Farm or... To Kill a Mockingbird, some of the books that I remember from from my school days, from that that, that sort of same canon, I found this book a little more morally ambiguous. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was mm -hmm. it was surprisingly strange novel. I kind oh, of anticipated yeah. I anticipated more plot, more events, but it's actually it's pretty brooding. I mean, it's like this introspective story. Uh, after Finney falls from the tree, not much really happens. It just centers on Gene's state of mind as he tries to come to grips with that one moment and why he did it and the. The awfulness of the war that's sort of waiting his generation yeah and, so, and also whether or not he did it that is something right. that is so it felt then and it feels to me very true that feeling of did i do this intentionally or was it a moment of subconscious and that's what he's tortured by it seems like mm -hmm. he would be less tortured if he knew he really did do it intentionally and it sort of makes it surprising in retrospect uh that it was given to me, I think I read it, you know, freshman year of high school. I think it was like freshman year that we read this story. And, you know, I can sort of understand now why people have it banned every year in, in schools because it's a really sort of emotionally upsetting book. And Wait, explain that. It banned? I didn't know that. Oh, what yeah. Do you mean? It's, it's banned every it's, year. It's one of the most banned books uh, in America. Why? Because of the issues of morality um, that huh. go in there and the, the you know, the, the nihilism. Because it never ties it up in a t tidy bow that, yeah. that, that Gene yeah. actually did something. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of, it's always one of the most banned books every year. That, uh, that book and, um, or this book and, you know, Catcher in the Rye, sort of hand in hand get banned on a you know, on a fairly regular basis in small towns in Kansas. I was surprised that it leaves a lot of the things unresolved. We don't get a, like, you know, the end where here's everyone now, mm -hmm. uh, American graffiti sort of ending. I mean, we do know that Gene never actually made it to the war, but we never find out what happens to, say, Leper, who is the, um, the one character that does enlist before graduating high school, and he ends up uh, deserting the war or deserting the military even before he gets shipped off to war because he has these uh, delusions or he goes kind of crazy. You know what? This this book really, I can't believe I had never thought of this before, but to me this book is so similar to The Great Gatsby. 
Oh, absolutely. The, the ending specifically. And the, the sort of moralizing ending, yeah. The right. relationship between the men. I mean, why is it narrated by someone who doesn't really know what he wants, who's watching someone who very clearly knows what he wants, but mm-hmm. goes through a tragic process in which it's all taken away from him? That's interesting because I was actually reminded of On the Road. Uh, I sort of felt like this was a juvenile version of that, where you have this introverted character who worships his more outgoing counterpart. Hmm. Well, you know, I think there, the the tragedy is that, you know, Gene hates Finney for his inherent goodness and right. uh, and innocence, which is a pretty dark thing, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's a hatred that's mixed with a kind of. Um, you know, obsession or even, you know, maybe a, a love, which is, I, I think, where the Great Gatsby comparison comes into play because clearly in The Great Gatsby, Nick admires Gatsby um, while at the same time finding him disgusting in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's it's a similar thing here. Gene clearly admires Finney but is disgusted because he knows he can never be him, that he has to have his own personal enemy, you know, that he has to, he has to fight the battle to be different than Finney. Um, so I, I think what makes this book still read so often and makes it such a classic is that it doesn't, it doesn't provide easy answers. You know, it, it makes us question our own petty jealousies. You know, <laughs> we each contain in uh, ourselves multitudes of petty jealousies and hatreds towards people we don't even know <laughs> right <laughs> much less <laughs> right. much less the people we do know um and you know when you're 16 or 17 and you read this book for the first time and i remember this very clearly having that exist in literature for me gave gave me some comfort i remember loving this i mean this was one of those books i guess i I read it probably over the summer, maybe before ninth grade or so. And for maybe a decade, I would I would say, like, oh, one of my favorite books is a separate piece. And I just loved it. And I think it was honestly one of the first books that I really loved the language in and mm-hmm. some of the writing. Like, I want to read a part right now because it was so amazing. Yeah, um, this is when they're training for the Olympics that mm-hmm. is definitely not going to happen because of the war. <laughs> Leave your fantasy life out of this. We're grooming you for the Olympics, pal, in 1944. And not believing him, not forgetting that troops were being shuttled towards battlefields all over the world, I went along, as I always did, with any new invention of Finney's. There was no harm in taking aim, even if the target was a dream. Mm-hmm. Like, that mm. is... That's good shit right there. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's lots of great lines. Like, like I'm, I'm early on too, they, they talk about sarcasm as the protest of the weak, mm. and just oh, like yeah. some great, yeah. great moments that you're <laughs> like, wow, this is a really intense book, and it does have a lot of really great ideas. And, and the, the actual, the separate peace passage, you know, when they're sort of having that party on the lawn, and the AX says that they they created their own separate peace in the midst mm-hmm. of this war hanging over them. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of time spent on the setting of this book, uh, which I think is part of the reason why it's assigned so often. I mean, besides the fact that it's set in a school and focused on on high schoolers, um, there's all these nice long passages that are dedicated to the buildings and the seasons, and sometimes they're they're like very on the nose symbolically. Um, like I remember, there's this one passage where they talk about the tree branches growing up ahead of them and getting more and more complicated. Um, between the buildings 
Elms curved so high that you ceased to remember their height until you looked above the familiar trunks and the lowest umbrellas of leaves and took in the lofty complex that held high above. Branches and branches of branches, a world of branches with an infinity of leaves. They seemed too permanent and never-changing, an untouchable, unreachable world high in space, like the ornamental towers and spires of a great church, too high to be enjoyed, too high for anything great and remote and never useful. You know, the the imagery of this tree, I mean, you could sort of hear the English teacher reading that out loud and saying to the class, like, what does that represent? What's the motif? Exactly. Do you guys think, I mean, in general, and this maybe is an impossible, do you think this is good writing or do you think this is good writing for ninth graders? Oh, I think it's I think it's good writing. I mean, I think no writer uh, can sustain having individual passages pulled out of his book, his or her book, and being asked if it's good writing. Sure, uh, sure. You know, it, it's all I think in the context, and I think what makes a separate piece its evocation of uh, of setting so important um, is that if you're sitting in a suburban classroom um, in you know, Palm Springs or Oakland or wherever it is that you might be, you have this idea of what it is to go to a boarding school. And it's it's as much creating uh, an alien world for that person as putting a, a, a story on Mars would be. And so mm-hmm. I, I think you need to have descriptions like that with the branches and the branches and the branches and the branches mm-hmm. to to give that person who's never going to see it that that weight, that the weight of the, the building of the world. I, and I also think that, you know, there's there's a rich canon of literature about, you know, schools on the East Coast. And I, I yeah. think you have to provide that sort of um, that color to it. But I think it does a really good job of evoking what I imagine must be a very intense thing. I mean, boarding school, God damn. Like you're just with other people who you barely know all the time. It must be like permanent camp. I, <laughs> but you don't get to have sex with them because they're all. Well, I guess you could have sex with you them. You could. Why not? <laughs> uh, you could. I couldn't. I'm married. Uh. <laughs> but yeah. But what I mean is the, <laughs> the claustrophobic sense of you know psychology that that mm-hmm. comes with high school anyway, and then put it in an environment where you're probably only with you know a hundred other people the entire year round. I thought. Right. It's a little, it's a, it's a little Lord of the Flies ish too, you know. Right. You well, know? the book does get into that near the end. I mean, with the tribunal. Well, yeah, they put him on trial for what he did to Finney, um, and it is, it, it's, it's pretty intense. Um, but I have to say, I growing up, I hated all that boarding school crap. I hated Catcher in the Rye for that reason. I hate, like, I never related. I, I never got. I, I Dead Poet Society never really spoke to me as a kid. Like for some reason, that that. That sort of representation of of adolescence never spoke to me because it seemed almost uh, too safe. It seemed like the rebellion was was um, contrived in a way. Like you know, oh we we snuck away from school and slept on the beach was always like, well who cares? You know, like <laughs> of course that's what you would do. Like I never felt like you know, and I mean I, I'm I sure that that was just me being naive and you know thinking in a very contemporary mindset i mean now i can read these things and kind of appreciate like wow you know like these guys were going through some heavy crap like (laughs) 
you know, like you were saying, like they're locked in the school together, but also the war is happening, you know, right. and they're going to go, they're going to go like, fight. They're going to go. Exactly. And they have to go. And there's that sense. Yeah, and of, to see which of the boys actually ends up going to war mm-hmm. and why he goes to war, because he watches some propaganda film. With right. Him, right. You know, right. Or, and they show all these beautiful landscapes, alpine landscapes. So he gets sucked in and joins. And of course, it's miserable. And and uh, he kind of goes crazy. What did you guys think about that whole passage? You know, we we've been fed the our people of our age this idea that this was the greatest generation that these these kids that are in this book became the greatest generation, and they were as duped by um, propaganda as as anyone could be. Mm-hmm. And I I think you know when 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 we learned that Gene didn't fight that he fought his war um, you know basically in school. And these other people went and fought. What we know now, of course, is that the people who fought saved the world, in essence. And (laughs) Gene was so self-absorbed that his most important battle was what happened to him when he was 17 years old. It really, for me, uh, that didn't resonate with me when I was 15 or 16 and I read the book. It resonated with me now at 40 and thinking how self-obsessed Gene was and how these other people went and did the... Did, even if they did it for the wrong reasons, they, you know, they, they saw the propaganda film. But they went and they fought, and, and they mattered because of it. And Gene now is just some guy who's obsessed with what he did when he was 16 years old. So you come down kind of harsh on Gene, then it sounds like. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't want to hang out with the dude. You might, you know, you right. might grab the wheel while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> but I also I find him an incredibly compelling character because of that. I mean. Right. Well, you also earlier were talking about how you, in a way, related to yeah, the complexity of the character and the guilt and the, the way that he sort of hated, had this petty petty right. hatred of somebody that he loved at the same time. And that's why we're here today, Ryder. I want to talk to you about how I feel about you <laughs> and how I didn't mean to... At Bennington, I shook that tree branch. I didn't mean to, also didn't mean to break Julia's leg once, but that's another story. Well, I, to me, it really reminded me that the the people who enlisted for that war were kids. They were mm-hmm. teenagers. And all that had to be done in those propaganda films is a, appeal to some childish notion of heroism. You know, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, th- there is no tomorrow. Everything is happening in that very moment. And so that sort of obsessive relationship you get with your friends or with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever. I have to say, like, I was kind of laughing out loud at how much Gene worships Finney. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's to the point where he he, he literally compares him to Lazarus at one point. <laughs> right. <It's> like, <laughs> watching watching Finney laying on the beach as the sun rises, mm. he's like, he looked like Lazarus. And then, like, you know, he can't, at one point he can't pray until Finney comes back to school. And then he's like, I could pray again. And I'm like, whoa, this is Stalker! Stalker! Yeah. But I also remember having very intense attachments, you know, to people when you're yes. that age, you know. And you sort of, you your best friend are the most important people in the world, you know, and and they're going to do great things and you're going to do great things. So everything seems like the world's going to collapse if X, Y or Z doesn't happen. And I think the author's ability to convey that in this book, you know, years after he was a teenager himself, I think is, is really a testament to his ability to understand how that brain thinks you when you're 17 years old it's like you know your hormones make you feel like you're on drugs even when you're not on drugs Mm -hmm. um and i think that the book shows that and then it also shows 
the the sort of soft focus that we all then give our memories. Mm -hmm. um, you know that that everything that happened then was important, even though we know, of course, that everything that happened when we were 15 probably wasn't that important. But there's that one traumatic event in Jean's life, and it's this. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think it's actually, you know, fairly true to how people act, even if it's not how we want to think we acted. God knows, I'm sure I stalked plenty of people when I was 15 years I, old. I, without question, was never a leader in any of my friendships. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there was a very distinct, and it actually is still true, there's a very distinct quality to my friendships where I am close friends with people who have, like, crazy ideas and want to do, I moved to China because a friend was like, hey, I'm moving to China, want to come? <laughs> that was so it's funny these kinds of and i've i've loved that i have no regrets about that it's always brought me to interesting places and luckily the people i worship were pretty cool but you know it's but would you want would you want your to child to do that i mean do you want your child to follow people around do you, or do you, do you want them to be phineas or do you want them to be gene not that you have a child not that i think you're gonna have one tonight or anything but don't we all imagine that our children will grow up to be the quarterback and the president and, you know, all, all these things that they're always going to be the take charge people. We don't want our children to be passive. Um, I, I mean, I guess that's true, but in a way like the world needs observers and critics and people who are thinking about, what these things mean. I mean, Finney isn't presented as someone who is thinking hard about anything, mm -mm. you know? Right. Well, I think that there's, there's always in, in, in literature, there's always a tradition of a sort of more outgoing, crazy per, I mean, Ahab and Ishmael, you know, uh, on the road, great Gatsby. We already talked Abbott about, and but the idea, yeah, but <laughs> the idea of a sort of more internalized, introverted thinking character as a narrator I mean, I think we all relate to that on some level. I mean, we all have, I mean, I know I have relationships, especially as a teenager, I had relationships where I was the crazy one sort of pushing somebody to go outside of their, but then I had other relationships where I was definitely following someone off another cliff, you know, right. whatever they were jumping off of, I would, I would do. Um, so I think we all relate, but it, it's, it's funny that in literature in particular and, and actually American literature, it seems like a lot of the classic American, the great American novels have that structure of like being narrated by a more, I mean, even Huck Finn, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's secondary to Tom Sawyer, even though his book is the sort of, but even within Huck Finn, he talks about how, you know, this is, I'm a secondary right. character. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Same relationship. I, I guess my thought on this is I don't think the world is necessarily a better place if we all, think we're the protagonists of the meaning of life you know what i mean <laughs> that's a that's a great that's a good that's line. a great thing to say yeah, yeah. i like that <laughs> I, i'm really gonna think about that wow you, that's cool you need some other characters in there and i am happy to be one is it okay if i think i'm the unreliable narrator of the history of the world <laughs> That's it. it makes me think of, isn't it? T.S. Eliot has the line like, "I'm not even Hamlet. I'm not Hamlet. I'm just a fool," mm. you know, mm. in the wasteland. And that was like a big shift in sort of modernist literature was this idea that we're not going to be heroes, you know, that we're just going to mm. be a walk-on part or right. a joke. Or um, like, like Ice Cube said, "Life ain't nothing but bitches and money," you know. That's yeah. right. It's a similar yeah. thing. True that's for really some. <laughs> 
All right, well, I, you know what? I'm really glad that a separate piece sort of survived. I have to be honest. I expected to really hate this book or to just sort of roll my eyes constantly. I expected you to hate it, too. I expected Ryder to hate it, too, or I expected him to love it, knowing Ryder's love of sentiment, sentimental teenage narrators. Yes, I did. Yeah, I, you know, that, I think that's what ultimately sucked me in is this nostalgia, and the, but also the fact that it doesn't wrap up. Like, you know, right. I kept sort of waiting for it to return to Gene, walking the halls at the end and, and sort of saying, you know, and then... Then this happened to me, and Finney turned out all right, and we all went to, you know, college together. You know, but it wasn't. It was like, ugh, I'm just going to leave you hanging with this, you know, this open question about my moral character, and you got to think about that. And I thought that was really nice, and I I feel like that's why this book has endured. So, all right. uh, Thanks, guys, for uh, rereading and uh, investing in separate piece all over again. Happy to do it. Thank you. That wraps up this segment of Literary Disco. Talk to you guys soon. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, I'm Todd, and we are bringing back one of the audience favorites, um, Julia created this feature. It's called (laughs) Classic Corner with two Ks. That's right. We're not really sure where the two Ks go. Um, It makes it wacky. It does make it wacky. It's like really wacky. We're gonna have Mm T-shirts soon that you're gonna be able to buy. So the um, the basic rules of Classic Corners with two Ks is simple, which is that one of us reads a fantastic (laughs) classic book and then tries to trick the other two with a paragraph they have written in the style of said tone. So this week, I picked up a little book called uh, Crime and Punishment by a gentleman named Dostoevsky. Love this book. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, too. (laughs) And I have a a fancy gilded one that I bought at a library sale um, a couple years ago that I thought was probably worth um, a lot of money, that it was real gold. <laughs> Turns out it's about seven ninety five. Um, hey I am rolling in the box. It's a lot of money to some people, Todd. So I have three samples here. Um, I'm going to read each one of them and let you guys uh, chat about them a little bit, and then you can decide which one is, in fact, not really just yes. All right, you guys ready? <sighs> yes. All right, here we go. Uh, oh, God, i got to pronounce this dude's name. Uh, Raskolnikov. 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 Raskolnikov thought it all seemed implausible. Porphyry's actions hadn't resulted in the least bit of shame, nothing approaching the pale remorse that he expected. Had it all been a lie meant to trap him? Porphyry seemed to delight in his insolence on the matter, the man's face turning crimson about his scowl, his eyes narrowed with a lack of caution, his chin showing no aversion to the weight of the matter, all about him, resolute and damning. The strained attention, how it infuriated him. All right, that's number one. Number two. Yes, it was true. It was all true. He had, however, known it before, and the problem was not new. And when he made his decision in the night to throw everything into the water, he had made it without hesitation or reconsideration, but as if it had to be, as if it could not be otherwise. Yes, he knew it all, and he remembered everything indeed. It was all but decided yesterday, in that moment, when he crouched above the trunk and dragged the cases out of it. It was indeed so. (gasps) 
There's a lot of exclamation points in here. I don't know what to think of this. Number two. Hmm. And then number three. Peter Petrovich, his pale face distorted with rage, looked at him for some seconds and then turned and went out. And rarely indeed has any man carried such vicious hatred in his heart as he now felt for he blamed him and him alone for everything it is worthy to note that even as he descended the stairs he still imagined that the game was not utterly lost and that as far as the ladies were concerned things might still be completely and absolutely right <laughs> ladies and gentlemen mm. This is a tough one. Uh, I think partly because it's also a translation. So absolutely tricky, tricky bastard. Not just language, uh, you know, actual word vocabulary choice, but more. It's more a question of tone. If it helps you any, my family escaped from Russia in 1919. Great. Do you like Crime and Punishment, Todd? I do. I haven't read it in years, but when I read it, um, I must have read it ten years ago. I thought it was remarkable. I always thought, when I was a kid, I always thought it was, like, the, first of all, the height of, like, very long books, Mm -hmm. which turns out not to be true. It's not as long as a lot of other classics. But also, I thought it was, like, shortcut for boring, but it isn't. It is amazing. It's so suspenseful. Yeah, it's a great book. It is so exciting. I mean, the opening is just, like, I mean, that first couple chapters, you're just, oh, it's so exciting. and disturbing too i don't remember them what are they well just that he's he kills the 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 his landlady and her daughter right i mean mm-hmm. that's it's the crime yeah. right. and i think that's it happens right in the beginning of the book maybe it's not the first couple chapters but it happens so early and he's planning on doing it and you're just drawn into his insanity and his starvation and his poverty and how he's like okay i'm gonna do this and it's just yeah, he it's completely wonderful. rationalizes it. It's almost right. like reading Poe for the first time of like, oh, God, this is really, truly disturbing. And the thing that the thing that I always found remarkable about the book for me and why it was sort of influential for me at the time that I read it is that it handles um, madness in a really mm-hmm. compelling fashion. You know, you it, everyone in this book is unreliable, not just the people who do right. the crimes. Um, and so it's. I mean, clearly, Dostoevsky knew what he was doing. He was no hack. Um, but it, it's also, it works at so many different levels. It's, it's the kind of book that I should probably read again because I suspect who I am now is different than I was 10 years ago, and I would probably get a lot more out yeah. of it even then. But now, back to the game, you two. Yes. Okay. This is more important than actual literature, right. quote-unquote. All right. So I'm going to throw out there that I don't think it can be the third one because I don't think Todd would be able to write in all seriousness the phrase, as far as the ladies were concerned. The ladies. The ladies. That seems like it would be a distraction. So I think we can eliminate the third. I think the third one has to be crime and punishment for that reason. Then, all right. Exclamation points are throwing me off here. (laughs) I think the second one is Todd. It was true. It was all true. He had, however, known it before, and the problem was not new. I don't know. I feel like punctuation is a good hint here on on writing style, and these are nice long sentences with a lot of semicolons in them, so I'm going to guess that's Todd. Just for no reason. I think number two is Todd. I am I am I am like you drawn to the punctuation but I feel exactly the opposite because I actually remember this book having a real energy to it in 
the writing. It's a, like a Ooh. real run-on sort of energy. And I remember Ooh, thinking wow, it minor. had lots of exclamation points. So I'm actually going to say it's number three because of its lack of exclamation points and because it seems more modern sentences that are shorter and a little hmm. more to the point. Whereas the first two are a little more, you know, this is a tough one. It's not easy, mm, but I think that's a really I'm going to say the third writer. one. And the other one, the other, the other thing about the third one is it has a phrase at the end completely and absolutely in quotation marks. And I feel like I don't think Dostoevsky put things in quotation marks. I feel like that's more of a modern tendency, a sort of, you know, referential meta thing that not that yeah, I just I just don't think that doesn't seem like Dostoevsky Dostoevsky we are like in his head and we are all in one you know one stream of conscious sort of not that we're in because we're it's not actually first person but I feel like the 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 sort of extra level of quotation marks is too outside uh for what Dostoevsky did but that's that's hmm. the only reason I'm gonna so I'm gonna say three I've never been more proud to say you're both wrong it's number one, isn't it? It. <laughs> it is, in fact, number one. And, you know, the thing about number three, Ryder, with the quote, is I think it's actually a quote. I think the, the yeah. women actually say completely right. and absolutely. Because when I picked okay. that, I, I thought, oh, that must, I, I don't see him doing that either. Um, it, he must be referring to some internal dialogue from earlier. Yes. Now, right. I thought yeah. for sure you guys would get number one because of the opening sentence, which is, Russian name thought it all seemed implausible, which seems to me like the beginning of a short story I would write. <laughs> just, a, just an opening line that is sort of modern fiction. But I kept it there as a uh, as a placeholder. Um, and then I thought, oh, yeah, I might use that. But so here's the thing about this section is that I went looking through the book a lot for words that he used a lot, and insolence is there constantly. Um, yeah. But he, his book, it's literally... 500 pages of comma spliced run on sentences which yeah. which is easy to mimic um right well that's why i thought that that third mm -hmm. one was too because it seemed it's too truncated like all the sentences sort of it's a little more solid but way to go man that's awesome i'm i'm pretty much one of the greats i think of russian literature i think when when people yeah. look back Oh, you're up there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel upset that I did not get this. I'm I'm taking this hard on the chin. I feel like murdering someone. I, I think uh, I think when Julia is up, which it'll be her turn next, um, the gauntlet's been been dropped or thrown. So something's happened with you that fucking gauntlet. <laughs> uh, that gauntlet. Todd, you don't <laughs> drop the gauntlet. <laughs> what do you do, Butterfingers? <laughs> Well, thanks, guys, for playing along, and thank you for playing along at home. Um, if you'd like to look at the book itself, it's a little ditty called Crime and Punishment by Theodore Dostoevsky. And uh, we'll catch you next time. What do you do with the gauntlet? What goes on with the gauntlet? We're going to... The gauntlet has been slapped across the face. Whatever goes on with the gauntlet, it's been thrown? What do we do with the gauntlet? Running with that gauntlet. Do I know what a gauntlet really is?